Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Of all the illustrious women of this world, Joanna, radiant rose amongst thorns, enfolded us, the whole Roman church, and her subjects in an amazingly sweet scent. She passed on from the misery of this world to the beatitude of God's kingdom, where she lives and reigns, and where, despising and mocking her adversaries, she received the scepter that has been taken from her, and receives her crown among the saint martyrs. Antipope Clement VI. Welcome to the other half. Episode 4.8, Joanna of Naples, the new Jezebel. Last time, we saw the middle part of Joanna's reign as Queen of Naples, as she battled a trio of foes, Black Death, Hungarian invaders, and internal enemies. Added to these were her overbearing husbands, first Louis of Taranto, and then James, the exiled king of Mallorca. James's mental instability and violent behaviour meant that they needed to be supervised whenever they came into contact. They did manage to conceive a baby, only for Joanna to miscarry. Now nearly 40, Joanna had given up hope of producing a natural heir, meaning that now she had to solve a bit of a conundrum. Who would succeed her as ruler of Naples? But, as had happened throughout her rule, events abroad, especially in Avignon, would undo her best laid plans. Now, this will be the last of our series on Joanna and of 2021. The next episode is one I'm very excited about, an interview with historian and new podcaster Hallie Rubenhold about the victims of Jack the Ripper. That will be coming out on the next scheduled episode day, the 2nd of January, with the next mini-series of this season coming a couple of weeks after that. Now, we're now entering the holiday season, with many of you now frantically trying to find that perfect gift – And, well, if you're looking for something for your humble podcaster, then you should head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast and support this show. 
Your generous support keeps this show well-researched and on the air. And those that already patronise the show have my eternal gratitude. And if you can't support the show financially, then why not recommend it to friends and family over the festive cheer? Okay, I think that's enough self-promotion. There's a lot to get through today, so let's get going. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. In 1364, there were two significant deaths in the Kingdom of Naples. The first was of Niccolo Acciaioli, a character of great importance to the kingdom, but on whom I've not been able to concentrate much attention. He had been her chief minister, and entrusted with keeping the cogs of government turning, and he'd done a fairly decent job. He was replaced with an able administrator called Niccolo Spinelli, who would work with the Queen to produce something of an economic boom for Naples, which had suffered for so long from the ravages of war and plague. Now, I will be giving Niccolo Spinelli as short a shrift as I had his predecessor, but just to let you know, he will be working around the background, and he is a very important character in Neapolitan history. The second death was that of Robert of Taranto, her former brother-in-law and powerful internal rival. On his death... He had been an extremely wealthy man, and Joanna took back some of his lands to help pay off the kingdom's debts, something that would not please his heir and brother, Philip of Taranto. Philip, of course, was married to Joanna's sister, Maria, but this loss of influence meant that the Tarantos would no longer be a serious threat to Joanna's rule. Maria herself would die a couple of years later. Relations between the sisters had been frosty for years, as her very existence posed a threat to Joanna's authority. That said, Joanna had always done her best to protect Maria's safety, and I'm sure that she would have mourned the loss of her sister greatly. Her death meant that Joanna's heir apparent became Maria's eldest daughter, Joan, whom we met in the previous episode. That same year, 1366, her unstable husband, James frustrated at his lack of influence over the government of Naples and eager to regain his crown, left the kingdom to try and drum up allies for an expedition to take back Majorca. After initially meeting with no success, he did find an ally in Prince Edward of England, better known as the Black Prince. Fresh off smashing the French at Poitiers, he was looking to depose the King of Castile, the largest Christian kingdom in Spain, and thus deprive France of one of its most powerful allies. He proposed an alliance with James, where, if he helped Edward with his Castilian War, he would help him win back his kingdom. James readily agreed and went off to war with the Black Prince, but the expedition ultimately failed, and he was captured by the Castilians. This meant that Joanna was forced to raise a considerable sum of money to ransom back a husband she didn't even like. The things you do to make good on your marital vows, eh? Unsurprisingly, she was highly reluctant to do this duty, but her hand was forced when Pope Urban V intervened to make sure that she did her duty. Speaking of Pope Urban, also in 1366, he upended the balance of power in Europe 
by announcing that he was leaving Avignon and returning to Italy. Now, I won't get into the reasons for why he did this, but it wasn't as easy as packing his bag and boarding a ship. Rome and the Papal States were still awash with crime and corruption, and Joanna was asked to contribute troops to an army of pro-Papal Italian states to make it safe for Urban's arrival. This move was not without controversy. Most of the College of Cardinals refused to go with him, and those that did were not exactly happy about it. The expedition, though, went off without a hitch, and not long after his arrival, Joanna made a state visit to Rome, and was met by a very grateful pontiff. There, she was the first woman in history to receive the Golden Rose, a real honour that had only been bestowed before on a handful of people. This was one of the high points of Joanna's reign, but just as she was receiving the rose, an old enemy once again surfaced to cause trouble. Like Joanna, King Louis of Hungary was childless and looking to secure the succession. His nearest heir was his niece, but he was unwilling to pass his crown off to a woman. And you'll never guess who he chose. Yep, a Durazzo. Because Joanna could never be free of that infernal family. The Durazzo in question was Charles, the son of Louis who had died in Joanna's custody a few years before after rebelling against her rule on numerous occasions. Charles was only seven at the time, and in Joanna's care, so King Louis was looking to mould him in his own image, and probably not mentioned too often that he had had his uncle killed. After he arrived in Hungary, Charles was given an illustrious education, and Louis looked to provide him with an equally strong marriage. After failing to match him with the daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor, he looked to Naples, and to Margaret, the youngest daughter of Joanna's late sister, Maria. Joanna was extremely unkeen on this proposal. This unholy alliance of Hungary and Durazzo would make Charles very powerful, and it would also give the King of Hungary a way in to interfere with her government. However, the Pope was very keen. He wanted Hungarian help to deal with some military threats, and so broken a deal where King Louis promised to stay out of Neapolitan affairs in return for Joanna allowing the marriage to occur. The wedding took place in January 1370, and Charles, now 13 years old, didn't wait around, quickly making his bride, nine years his senior, pregnant. This sadly ended in miscarriage, but they would go on to have many further children, including a son, Ladislaus. Meanwhile, over in Rome, things were going south fast. Urban's decision to return to the Eternal City was proving to be a big mistake, and his favouring of French churchmen over Italians led to civil war in the Papal States. Things got so bad that Joanna was forced to send ships to ferry Pope Urban back to Avignon, but this failure weighed heavily on the pontiff, and he died only a few months later. Urban's folly exposed a rift at the heart of the Catholic Church, between the French and Italian factions in the College of Cardinals, and things were only about to get worse. Over in Avignon, the college convened, where, guided by Joanna's ally, Guy of Boulogne, they elected Gregory XI. He was no stranger to the papacy, as he was the nephew of Clement VI, the pope that had presided over Joanna's trial. He was young, vigorous, and keen to make Rome safe for him to eventually return. 
Joanna, eager to maintain good relations with the papacy, agreed to send more troops to the Papal States, led by her husband James, whom I'm sure she was delighted to get out of the palace. Neapolitan forces made up the bulk of a pro-Gelfic league that took on their old foes, the Milanese, who had been funding mercenary bands making trouble in the Papal States. Joanna was instrumental in persuading the strongest mercenary captain in Italy, Sir John Hawkwood, to change sides and helped pay for his services. Not only did her forces help the Pope win a string of victories, but in the resulting peace, she won Piedmont in northwestern Italy back for Naples, a region she had claimed as part of her inheritance from her grandfather, Robert the Wise. Her husband, though, had not played much of a part in this great success for Joanna, as he had drifted off to France early in the war to try and drum up a support again for an expedition to Majorca. He managed to scrounge up about 1,200 knights and invaded Aragon, the kingdom that held possession over his island kingdom. He won some minor victories, but his fragile health could not withstand long periods on campaign. He fell ill while besieging a castle and died, making Joanna a widow for the third time in her life. Meanwhile, over in Hungary, King Louis was on manoeuvres. He had gone off on the idea of Charles as his heir, and instead he had a far bolder notion in mind. His eldest daughter, Catherine, was unmarried. He wrote to the King of France and proposed a marriage alliance between his son, Louis of Anjou, and Catherine. To sweeten the deal, he dusted off his old argument that Joanna was an illegitimate usurper, and so claimed that Catherine would come with a dowry of Naples, Piedmont and Provence. The Hundred Years' War pendulum was swinging the way of France at this time, and a peace agreed in 1375 left England with very little territory left on the continent. This all meant that the French king, Charles V, was looking for new regions to conquer, and bringing Provence back into the French fold was a very tempting notion indeed. This was a bit of a betrayal by France, as it had long been an important ally of Naples, so this marriage agreement represented a substantial existential threat. Luckily for Joanna, Catherine died before the wedding could take place. But these further manoeuvrings by King Louis showed that her rule was still far from fully secure, let alone the succession. Joanna knew, though, that while she had the support of the Pope, she was safe from Hungarian interference. Her forces had been instrumental in defeating the Pope's enemies in Italy, and this success emboldened Pope Gregory to make another attempt at returning to Rome. With him enthroned in the Eternal City, Joanna could secure Naples as the most powerful and influential state in Italy, and become one of Christendom's most influential rulers. But, once more... A French Pope had underestimated the hostility of central Italy and the dangers posed by the marauding mercenary bands still in play. Sir John Hawkwood, still in papal pay, was out of control and forced a massive bribe from Florence in return for not attacking. This flipped the Florentines, who blamed the Pope for all of this, over to the Milanese. And despite Joanna's desperate diplomatic overtures, This led to war once again between Joanna and the Guelphic League against the Milanese and the Ghibelline League. The resumption of war accelerated Joanna's search for a new husband, as, once again, she needed a man to command her armies. 
Now, as we've seen, she has had some genuinely rubbish husbands so far. We've had Andrew of Hungary, admittedly not her choice, who was temperamentally unsuited to rule, and whose murder led to her being briefly deposed and on trial for her life. Then there was the overbearing Louis of Taranto, who tried to sideline her and subjected her to years of torment. And then finally the mentally unstable James of Mallorca, who assaulted her in front of the whole court. And on top of that, none of them had even been particularly good generals or given her a surviving son. So one imagines she thought very carefully about hubby number four, and her eyes focused on a German duke, Otto of Brunswick. Finally, a new name, am I right? Otto was six years older than her and an experienced military commander. He had spent years in the services of a Piedmonte Marquess and fought in a number of wars against Milan. He was a very minor noble and far Joanna's junior in terms of seniority and offered nothing in terms of prestige to her. But Joanna was long since past caring about that sort of thing. She wanted a dependable husband, one who would not try and depose her or attack her in front of her court. Indeed, his lowly rank actually was a bit of a feature of his candidature. Naples would never have accepted such a minor noble as their king outright. He wasn't even given it as a courtesy title, which meant that he could never really challenge her rule. The two married in 1376 and hit it off immediately. Finally, Joanna had found herself a husband on whom she could rely. And soon, everything came up Joanna. Florence was quickly put back in its corner, and after a particularly nasty war, the pro-papal Guelphic League triumphed once again, meaning that Gregory was ready to return to Rome. Securing his position in the Vatican was costly, and the Pope wrote numerous begging letters to Joanna asking for more and more money, requests that she accepted, although increasingly grudgingly. This was because she could ill afford such expenses, Naples wasn't a bottomless pit of money, but she regarded this as a worthwhile long-term investment. Gregory was a young pope, and if secured in place, could be a political partner that could secure her legacy. Everything, finally, was going well. For, oh, about a year, when Pope Gregory suddenly and unexpectedly died. The result would be chaos, schism, and disaster for Joanna. Throughout this series, I've been feeding in the ingredients for what history knows as the Western Schism. First, we have chaos in Italy that saw the popes move out of Rome and reside in Avignon in 1309. The Avignon popes were all French by birth, their courts were stuffed with French cardinals and bishops, and their home was protected by French soldiers. Historians are somewhat divided as to the extents of the influence the French king had over the papacy, but it was undoubtedly an important relationship. We've now seen two popes attempt to move the papal throne back to Rome, but each time Italian, and specifically Roman politics, led to both attempts ending in failure. This was the second ingredient, this split between French and Italian factions, 
And then finally, there is also the ruptures caused by the Hundred Years' War that forced so many kingdoms and duchies across Europe to align behind either England or France. It's no surprise that the fault lines of the Hundred Years' War will be the same ones in the Great Schism. When Pope Gregory died in March 1378, the College of Cardinals, pressured by the mob, elected the first Italian pope in decades, Urban VI. He was a compromise candidate, not just between the French and Italian factions, but also between competing French blocs, the complexities of which I won't trouble you. Urban was formerly the Archbishop of Bari, and was therefore Neapolitan by birth. By selecting one of Joanna's countrymen, the cardinals recognised just how important Joanna and her kingdom was to the safety and security of the papacy in Rome. Indeed, the official proclamation announcing his election read, quote, He was by birth of the Kingdom of Naples, which was now ruled by Queen Joanna, a princess very devout and loyal to the church. The Roman mob, however, wanted a Roman pope, and so pushed their way into the conclave, forcing the new pope to hide in a cupboard while the rest of the cardinals soothed the crowd. It was an inauspicious start. Joanna was, of course, delighted at the prospect of a Neapolitan pope, and knew Urban well. Indeed, many members of her government transferred to Rome to serve in the new papal administration, emphasising the close linkages between Rome and Naples. Unfortunately, Pope Urban was pretty much the worst person the cardinals could have chosen. The febrile atmosphere called for a man of diplomatic tact and subtlety. Urban had all the subtlety of a sledgehammer blow to the head. Historian William Percy described him as, quote, one of the most insane of all the popes, usually described as capricious, arbitrary, deceitful, distrustful, nepotistic, and vengeful, even by his defenders. Interestingly, these were not traits associated with him before he became pope, but once he took the throne of St. Peter, he would publicly hurl abuse at cardinals and physically attack them if they did not carry out his bidding to the letter, and even extended this treatment to foreign dignitaries. This included one led by Joanna's husband Otto of Brunswick, which had been sent to convey her congratulations. He humiliated Otto by forcing him to wait on bended knee in front of the whole court for several minutes, and then launched a furious tirade against Joanna, threatening to, quote, use his power over her and to place her in a nunnery and confiscate all of her goods. In a later meeting, he had still not chilled his beans, threatening to depose Joanna and replace her with the Duke of Anjou. The Neapolitan embassy left in an understandably furious temper and conveyed their concerns to Joanna. While she was understandably shocked, it's unlikely she would have taken the Pope's tirades all that seriously. She had dealt with both friendly and antagonistic Popes before, and outlasted all of them. Why should this one be any different? Over in Rome, the French cardinals and their allies, though, had had enough. Not only were they enduring daily verbal abuses, but Urban went after their privileges preventing them from accepting what were essentially bribes and limiting their meals to a single course, the horror. So this faction slipped out of Rome and declared that Pope Urban was illegitimate, 
as selection had been forced upon them by the mob. They met with Joanna, who agreed with their arguments and offered them protection. Studies of the Great Schism often overlook this crucial moment, as it's unlikely the cardinals would have been emboldened enough to act were they not given the implicit support of Joanna's majesty and, crucially, her army. This faction then retired to Fondi, a town just inside Neapolitan territory near the border with the Papal States, and elected a rival pope, a Frenchman who took the name of Clement VII. Joanna would be the first prince of Europe to be told, and though she wasn't a particular fan of Clement personally, she pledged her support. The Great Schism had begun. As I said before, broadly speaking, support for each pope fell on which side of the Hundred Years' War you are on. France and Naples were the most prominent supporters of Clement, while England, the Holy Roman Empire and Hungary, among others, backed Urban. Crucially, though, for Joanna, most of the city-states in northern and central Italy backed Urban. He was Italian, and they had no desire to submit to yet another French pope. And this view was shared by the majority of the people of Naples, who balked at the idea of opposing one of their own countrymen in the throne of St. Peter. There were riots in the streets, and one city, Apulia, went into open revolt. The schism also led to war, with armies loyal to each pope fighting a battle outside Rome in the spring of 1379, which saw Clement's forces defeated. No longer safe in Fondi, Clement fled the city and sought refuge under Joanna's protection in Naples. It's worth stopping for a moment here and reflecting on the symbolism of this moment. Almost exactly 30 years before, Joanna had supplicated herself to a pope in his palace in Avignon to plead for her crown and her life. Now, the roles were entirely reversed. She offered Clement the Castel Nuovo as his new papal palace, looking to turn the city into a new Avignon. Clement, though, recognised that Avignon was probably better than this new Avignon, as it was far closer to his strongest ally. Disappointed, Joanna provided him with the ships to take him back safely to Provence. But while Clement was now safe, Joanna's troubles had only just begun. Riots were growing in scale and violence, and her troops were currently engaged in Piedmont. If the mob was to get much larger, then they could be a real threat to Naples. So Joanna made what can only be described as a bold move. She issued a proclamation, withdrawing her support for Pope Clement and throwing it behind Urban, sending ambassadors to Rome to make official overtures of submission. This bought her enough time to bring her troops back from Piedmont, crush the rebellion, at which point she re-reversed her position and re-recognised Clement. Got that? This was short-termism writ large, And while it solved her immediate problem, it was at the cost of all her credibility. She had made mistakes before during her reign, but none as catastrophic as this one. Urban was understandably apoplectic at this deception, and labelled her, quote, the new Jezebel and the height of impunity. He immediately excommunicated her and ordered her deposition, in favour of Charles Durazzo and his wife Margaret. Yep, 
the Durazzos are back for one last hurrah. And in this spirit of getting the old band back together, they had the support once more of King Louis of Hungary. His armies were already in the peninsula, but now Pope Urban asked Louis to order them south to invade Naples for the second time. Joanna was confident that her forces could defend her kingdom, but Clement did not share that confidence. He brokered a deal with Prince Louis, Duke of Anjou, whereby he would lead an army in support of Naples in return for being named as Joanna's heir. Now, this was not something that Joanna wanted. She had always been worried that an Angevin succession would lead to Naples being incorporated into the French crown. And let's not forget that only a few years before, Louis had been in league with the King of Hungary to achieve this very end. But Louis and Clement did not wait for her answer. Clement unilaterally issued a papal bull declaring Prince Louis as the official heir of the Kingdom of Naples, pitting him directly against Charles of Durazzo. Joanna was distinctly uneasy about this. She had never officially declared an heir, though she had made some noises before about probably accepting Charles of Durazzo, but this was before all these machinations. She had seen both he and his wife Margaret grow up, and until recently they had lived under her protection. But the circumstances of the time left her with little choice. And so, in June 1380, with Charles and his Hungarian allies advancing south through Italy, she officially adopted Louis and invested him with the title of Duke of Calabria, the traditional title of the heir to the throne. Louis of Anjou began to prepare his troops to set sail for Naples, but then came a fatal distraction. His elder brother, King Charles V of France, died unexpectedly, passing the throne to his 11-year-old son, Charles VI, the millionth, I imagine, and final Charles of this story. Louis departed immediately for Paris, as he had been named as one of the regents for his nephew, which all left Joanna high and dry. In June, her army, led by her husband Otto, met Charles's Hungarian allies at Palestrina. I say met because the Neapolitans were so hopelessly outmatched that they immediately retreated, falling back to make a defence of the capital. What happened next is related by an unnamed contemporary chronicler whose account was then copied by a later author. Quote, Two Neapolitan knights and captains of the horse advanced with their troops, and being guided by certain of those who had come out of the city, they moved to the seaside, waded, and entered by the Porta della Conceria. For those within, having trusted to its being washed away by the waves, it was neither locked nor guarded. And from thence, having marched the marketplace, with a great huzzah, they shouted, God save King Charles and Pope Urban. Then, being followed by those who were on the marketplace, they easily beat off those of the Queen's party and forced them to retire to the castle, while they opened the Porta del Mercato, at which Charles, with his army, entered. Otto and the bulk of the Neapolitan army were still outside the city at this point, and attempted to prevent Charles's entry, but to no avail, and soon Joanna was under siege in the Castel Nuovo. Charles used his catapults to pelt everything at the castle, from boulders to effluence, 
while also ordering his engineers to tunnel underneath. If you remember, Joanna had been trapped inside this castle with an enemy army at the gates before, and had lasted several months. But this had been at the expense of her allies outside the castle, who had been rounded up, tortured, and brutally executed. She wasn't willing to let this happen a second time, and so invited all her allies inside. This mercy had a catastrophic effect on the castle's stores, meaning that they were out of food after just a month, with no relief in store from Prince Louis. Her army, led by Otto of Brunswick, led one last desperate attack to relieve the siege. The battle was closer than expected, but eventually Otto himself, in the thick of the fighting, was overwhelmed and forced to surrender himself and the army. With this last hope extinguished, Joanna gave up. The same chronicler as before relates, quote, The next day, the Queen sent Ugo San Severini to surrender, and to beg of the conqueror to take those who were in the castle with her under his protection. The same day, the king, with his guard and San Severini, entered the castle and saluted the queen, assuring her that he would perform whatever he had promised, and would have her to remain in an apartment of the castle, not as a prisoner, but as queen, and to be served by the same servants as formerly. Joanna had surrendered and had been able to do so honourably, but she still had one last trick left up her sleeve. A few days after waving the white flag, Joanna saw Louis of Anjou's ship from Provence finally entering the port of Naples. Better late than never, eh? Louis was still in France, but he had sent a subordinate who demanded that he be able to see Joanna. Charles agreed, but on the condition that all she did would be to confirm her intention to make him, not Louis of Anjou, her heir. According to the sources, Joanna made that promise, presumably with her fingers crossed behind her back, and urged the subordinate to, quote, by no means ever accept of this ungrateful robber for your lord, who from a queen has made me a slave. And even if ever any writing shall be mentioned to you, or shown to you, whereby I may have appointed in my heir, believe it not, but look on it as if it were a forgery, or exhorted from me against my will. They then left, to go back to France and convey their message to Louis. But it seems that Charles got wind of what Joanna told the Provençals, because he immediately went back on his word to treat Joanna with the respect and honour due of a queen. Almost all her servants were removed, and she was held in semi-isolation until she formally accepted Charles as her heir. After a failed attempt to rescue her by one of her allies, she was moved in the middle of a violent storm away from the capital to a castle deep in the interior of the kingdom, where she was placed under the care of a jailer who hated her guts. She was given very little food, and even that was often withdrawn without any warning at any perceived slight. She was there for about a month and a half, likely ignorant of the chaos going on around her. This is because, after hearing Joanna's message, Louis left Paris for Avignon, raising an army en route large enough to take on Charles and his Hungarian allies. While at Avignon, he secured the weight of Pope Clement's support behind him, He marched his huge force south to free the Queen, but, unwittingly, 
he was writing her death sentence. On the 27th of July, 1382, Joanna was praying in the chapel of Murrow Castle, where she was being held, when she was surprised by four onrushing Hungarian soldiers and murdered. Now, there are two stories for what went on here. If you believe the pro-Hungarian version, this has the appearance of a contract hit. The soldiers rushed in and strangled her with a silken cord, mimicking the end met by her first husband, Andrew. This version has a sense of poetic justice to it, albeit of a very brutal kind. This version of the story is supplied to us by a secretary to Pope Urban in Rome. Another version, though, comes from the wife of Louis of Anjou, who reports that, in fact, she wasn't strangled. Instead, her hands and feet were restrained, and she was then suffocated between two mattresses. This version is rather less narratively interesting, and so is probably more likely to be true. But, honestly, it doesn't really matter. What does is that, at the age of 56, and after ruling Naples for 38 years, Joanna was dead. She was murdered violently, and not allowed to receive final sacraments, something that she would take in very seriously as a religious woman. This was because she had been excommunicated by Pope Urban, and of course the very suddenness of her killing. Charles of Durazzo tried to brush off the death of the Queen in a royal proclamation, but the people of Naples demanded to see her body. He was forced to move her from Muro to the church of Santa Chiara in Naples, which had been established by her step-grandmother, Sancha. There, the people of Naples were exposed to the horrors of Joanna's final days. Her face was gaunt, and her body thin with starvation, and her final moments of struggle would have left their mark. Indeed, many didn't even recognise her, leading to conspiracy theories spreading that she wasn't in fact dead. Due to her excommunication by the regime's preferred pope, she could not be buried in consecrated ground. Instead, her body was flung into a pit at the back of a church, and this was only at the instigation of the Poor Clares, a religious order that she had long patronised. I'm not sure what Charles and the Hungarians had in mind, but one imagines it was even less respectful. Joanna's death brought Charles of Durazzo, now styled as Charles III, to the throne, but his rule would be short. He immediately had to face the huge oncoming army of Louis of Anjou, but disease and Italian politics slowed his advance down, leading, essentially, to a stalemate. After two years of no progress, Louis died in 1384, and that year he was joined in the ground by his namesake, the King of Hungary. Joanna's great nemesis, who had caused her decades of problems, left his own kingdom in a very precarious state. He had passed the throne on to his 11-year-old daughter, with his wife Elizabeth acting as regent. Some Hungarian nobles, though, were uneasy at the prospect of being ruled by two women, and so asked Charles Durazzo, a former official Hungarian heir himself, of course, to take control. He did so, but no sooner had he gotten himself crowned as King of Hungary, to go with all the titles inherited from Joanna, than Queen Regent Elizabeth had him assassinated. The Neapolitan throne, though, stayed in Durazzo hands, passing first to Charles's two children, before, ironically enough, going to a René of Anjou, the grandson of Louis. Strange how things come full circle. 
So, how has history treated Joanna? Well, not well, is the answer. To the extent that she is remembered, it is as a husband murderer, a harlot who ruled badly, and brought the kingdom behind the wrong pope in the Great Schism. This backing of the wrong horse means that Joanna is still technically excommunicated, so no monument lies to her memory. A crying shame. History podcasters like me have a tendency to lionise one's subjects, a trap I try very hard not to fall into. But I have to say, I have become a really big fan of Joanna of Naples. In the words of the old proverb, she was cursed to live in interesting times. The tumult of the Hundred Years' War, Black Death and Great Schism, causing shockwaves rippling across the continent that she neither caused nor could prevent. She came to the throne as a woman to a controversial king and suffered from some terrible luck along the way that led to long wars against internal and external rivals. Was she to blame for some of her troubles? Yes, certainly, but everyone makes mistakes. And in many of the decisions that she had to make, there were no good options. And let's not forget that, albeit temporarily, she had managed to achieve Naples' number one foreign policy goal in regaining Sicily, and only lost it thanks to outside interference from so-called allies. And she won Piedmont back too. If medieval rulership is measured in territory gained, she was one of the best in Neapolitan history. And on the subject of the papacy, which is of course what we are interested in here, her dealings with the many popes during her reign showed her diplomatic skills brilliantly. She managed to keep various popes of various stripes off her back, and when she really needed their support, more often than not, she got them to give it. It was just her bad luck that, in the end, she was on the wrong side in the greatest religious crisis in medieval Christendom. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.